We're going to begin tonight with Daniel chapter 4. We're going through 28 to 37 tonight. And our text begins like this. Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. Now, all of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Well, what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, We have to look back to last week. If you were here last week, Randy spoke and led us through a passage about Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Well, who's Nebuchadnezzar? And who's Daniel? And why is Nebuchadnezzar having these dreams? And why is Daniel interpreting these dreams? Well, first of all, who is Nebuchadnezzar? He's the most powerful man in the entire world at this point in history. He's king of the Babylonian Empire. So that means he's the most powerful man since the Babylonian Empire is the most powerful empire in the world at this point in history. Well, who's Daniel? Daniel is a Hebrew exile. His native country, Israel, has been destroyed. The southern kingdom has been destroyed. And now they are in what's called the Babylonian captivity or the exile. Far from home in the land of present-day Iraq. So he's an exile in Babylon, but he's proven his worth so far with his wisdom and also with his ability to interpret dreams. Well, Nebuchadnezzar has a particular dream about a tree that gets chopped down, a massive, massive tree that gets cut down, but its root is left in the ground. So although the tree is cut... It is not killed. Well, then suddenly the image shifts from a tree to a strange human who has become very animalistic. It's very strange. Well, then Daniel interprets the strange dream and says that the tree is about to be cut down. And the person who becomes animalistic, these two images represent Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, just think about that. That's like probably a really difficult thing to say to the most powerful man in the whole entire world. You represent that tree that's about to be cut down. You represent this person who's acting all crazy and animalistic. Well, and then he further gives advice to Nebuchadnezzar. Break away from your sins and do what's right by showing mercy to the poor. Some strong words from Daniel. But tonight we're going to begin with verses 29 through 30. So I invite you to stand, if you are able to stand. And we'll read 429 through 30. It says, After twelve months, he happened to be walking around on the battlements of the royal palace of Babylon. The king uttered these words, Is this not the great Babylon that I have built for a royal residence by my own mighty strength and for my majestic honor? God, tonight we ask that you would speak to us directly in our situation tonight. Lord, would you teach us what it means to be humble? That we can turn from a life of pride and selfish self-centeredness. We look to you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. How might you describe King Nebuchadnezzar's words here? Anybody? 
Yeah, pompous, prideful. Is this not the great Babylon that I have built for a royal residence by my own mighty strength and for my majestic honor? It sounds rather prideful. And although it sounds rather prideful, which it is, the sense of achievement that Nebuchadnezzar is here expressing is severely understated. It's severely understated. The the theological scholar by the name of Stephen Langdon translated Nebuchadnezzar's inscriptions, his building inscriptions, and they amassed about 126 pages with text and translation. That means that Nebuchadnezzar built a whole lot of stuff. And these few words that he speaks here are just a severe understatement of the pride which... He had and which he could have displayed here. Now, I want you just to close your eyes for a moment and listen. Just just imagine this picture. The palace from which Nebuchadnezzar surveyed Babylon was one of the citadels on the north side of the city. It had large courts, reception rooms, a large throne room, residences, And the famous hanging gardens of Babylon. I want you to open your eyes and look at this picture. An artist's rendition of the hanging gardens of Babylon. The hanging gardens of Babylon are one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. These gardens are believed to have been a remarkable feat of engineering. It's an ascending series of tiered gardens containing all manners of trees and shrubs and vines. And it's nourished by a very intricate water supply. A very incredible engineering feat. Elaborate in its day and age. I mean, this is 600 B.C. And they have this whole system working here. It's pretty incredible. The gardens were said to have looked like a large green mountain covered or constructed of mud bricks. They were a distinctive feature of ancient Babylon, supposedly built by King Nebuchadnezzar. They they proved to be a great source of pride, not only for Nebuchadnezzar, but for the people of Babylon. Now, I want you just to continue to keep your eyes closed again. Close them back up and imagine... From the palace, he would see in the distance the city's 17-mile outer double wall, which he had built. His palace stood just inside the double wall of the inner city, which was punctuated by eight gates and encircled an area two miles by 1.5 miles, with the Euphrates River running through it. The palace adjoined a processional avenue that Nebuchadnezzar had paved with limestone. And decorated with lion figures, emblematic of Ishtar, the Mesopotamian goddess of love and war. This avenue entered the city through the Ishtar gate, which he had decorated with dragons and bulls, emblems of the Babylonian gods Marduk and Bel. It continued south through the city to the most important sacred place, the ziggurat, or stepped pyramid of Marduk, which housed this god's statue. I want you to open your eyes now. Babylon was great. 
an incredible city, an incredible empire. And Nebuchadnezzar had played a significant, a major role in elevating Babylon to such greatness. But his acclaim, his claim was accomplished. As he was saying, this was all by his own mighty strength for his own majestic honor. This claim he's making is a dangerous one to make. Verse 31 through 32 says, While these words were still on the king's lips about how great he is, about his honor, a voice came down from heaven. It is hereby announced to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, that your kingdom has been removed from you. You will be driven from human society and you will live with the wild animals. You will be fed grass like oxen, and seven periods of time will pass by for you before you understand that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and gives them to whomever he wishes. Do you hear all the you language going on here? While these words were still on the king's lips, a voice came down from heaven. It is hereby announced to you. King Nebuchadnezzar, that your kingdom has been removed from you. You will be driven from human society and you will live with the wild animals. You will be fed grass like an oxen. And seven periods of time will pass by for you before you understand that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and gives them to whomever he wishes. It is directly pointed at King Nebuchadnezzar, straight at the king. And it's quite a threat. But does this heavenly voice, does this heavenly voice speaking this threat to King Nebuchadnezzar know just how strong and just how mighty and just how majestic Nebuchadnezzar is? No, not really. Sure, he built some structures. Sure, he may have been the most powerful man in the entire ancient Near East at this particular time. Sure, he had defeated some empires. Sure, he had enslaved a vast amount of people. But is that greatness? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar thinks it is. Maybe the people around him thinks that. That defines greatness. Maybe the, the writers of our history books think that, that that's greatness. But I personally think that's pride. Look what I've done. Check it out. Look at me. Look who I am. What I have accomplished by my own strength. I am amazing. Is that what you tell yourself every day when you look in the mirror? That's what pride says. I believe that pride is the greatest sin, the utmost evil. It opens the floodgates to disorder and every evil practice. Pride. Maybe you thought, well, that's not that bad. You know, I should have pride, right? Lust, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other wrongdoing and every other immorality. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. 
Pride instills in us what I like to call the M.C. Hammer syndrome. Have you ever heard of the great theologian M.C. Hammer? His famous line, can't touch this. Well, no matter how flashy Nebuchadnezzar's hammer pants might be, and no matter how skilled he is at dancing, which I wish I could do up here for you, but I don't think our insurance covers that. No, I'm not even going to try it. No matter how flashy his pants might be, and no matter how great his dancing skills might be, God can touch this. God can. You know, when we selfishly rejoice in our own success and our own achievement, saying, look at me, everybody. Look. Look at how great I am. When we selfishly rejoice in our own success and our achievement, we should prepare ourselves to experience the imminent action of God. Because God will surely remind us of who we are and our place as mere creatures before him, before God, the only true majesty. It can happen to us just as it happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. The lofty and self-exalting is brought low and humbled. Verse 33 says, Now in that very moment, this pronouncement about Nebuchadnezzar came true. He was driven from human society. He ate grass like oxen, and his body became damp with the dew of the sky until his hair became long like an eagle's feathers and his nails like a bird's claws. I want you to take a moment, and uh, if, if you're not at a table with other people, make sure you get to a table with some other folks. And read Daniel 4.33 and illustrate what Nebuchadnezzar became. So use the crowns on your table and use that piece of paper to illustrate what Nebuchadnezzar became like. All right, crowns down. Crowns down. All right, what were the distinctive features that you tried your very best to illustrate? All right, feathers. What kind of feathers? Eagle feathers, right? What else? Claws. What do you call bird claws? Talons. What else? He's like eating the grass. Anything else? There's one more thing, really significant. He's sweaty, right? All right, well, I did a little image right here for you all. Right here. This right here, I just did that real quick. No, this is by the famous artist William Blake. It's kind of like, I think I look like that when I get out of bed in the morning. But as you can see, the hair is really long, the... I think he could have done a better job on the talons. But he's supposedly eating grass. So his condition became embarrassing. No offense to anybody, but he becomes a vegetarian, essentially. He's eating the grass or an herbivore. He's sweaty. He's a hippie without nail trimmers. He's got talons. 
It reminded me of uh, Pinocchio and his friends. You know, when they sprout ears and a tail and they start hee-hawing like donkeys. It's embarrassing, right? It also reminds me of another individual from The Sword and the Stone called Mad Madame Mim. She gets turned into all sorts of crazy stuff. A cat, a a tiger, a chicken, a pig, a, a dragon, snake, crocodile, elephant, and also a rhinoceros among Other things. It's ridiculous. There's no getting around it. Nebuchadnezzar here looks ridiculous. It's humiliating. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. God characteristically shames the wise and strong by means of those who are apparently weak and foolish. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 through 30. But God chose what the world thinks foolish to shame the wise, and God chose what the world thinks weak to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, what is regarded as nothing to set aside what is regarded as something. So that no one can boast in his presence. He is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus. Who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This may teach us that what we consider and what we think that might be weak and foolish. Might not be so weak and foolish After all, it also might teach us that what we might think is strong and wise might actually not be that strong and wise after all. I want you to take a look at Genesis 3. So look in your Bibles and flip back to Genesis 3. And I want you to answer this question. How might this scene with Nebuchadnezzar here relate to the story of Genesis 3? Work together. Pull out those Bibles, get them on the phones, and get digging. Go. All right, let's wrap it up here. All right, what what did you come up with? How does this story perhaps relate to what's happening in Genesis 3? Genesis 3 is famously known as the the story of the, yeah, the story of eating of the fruit. I don't know what they fall from, right? They fall from perfect harmony. They don't fall from grace. Because uh, Jesus gives us grace. Um, but what, how does this relate? Life of luxury to life of banishment. I love that word. Perfect word. Banishment. What else? What else is a common feature in both stories? How is pride in Genesis 3? What do you think? That's a good, good point. They want to be like God, right? They want to be selfish. Exactly. What else? There's a really striking uh, image that's used in both. It's kind of tall, maybe. Um, In one scene, it gets cut down. The other, it gets eaten from. Yeah, there's a tree. I'm not saying it's the same tree. It's just a, a common image is that a tree is in both. What else? They got cursed. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I think the most 
clear image of, of what's happening here is that Nebuchadnezzar gets banished. Now, they don't get banished from the same thing, but Nebuchadnezzar's banishment here is similar in a way. His banishment from human society into the wild is his personal and his royal experience of that banishment experienced by the Old Testament's first human beings. Well, as we continue, there's a a switch, a, a shift, not only in the experience of Nebuchadnezzar, but also with the narrator as it becomes first person from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, strangely. Verse 34a says, But at the end of the appointed time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up toward heaven, and my sanity returned to me. Now, I had a question as I was thinking about this. Uh, What is the insanity that maybe he was dealing with? Was the insanity how he became like an animal uh, as he was eating grass and had long hair and was sweating all over and had these talons? Was that the insanity that he was referring to? Or is the insanity his experience of pride? I think you could maybe argue it both ways. Well, the achievement and the splendor that he clung to so tightly before suddenly seemed very insignificant now. Very insignificant now. I mean, let's just look at maybe what uh, his kingdom looks like today. Here in present day Iraq, his kingdom looks like this. Where's that pyramid at? Where are those gardens at? Where's that long limestone road? It's all ruins today. It's all gone. Nebuchadnezzar had looked over Babylon with pride, with maybe even a justifiable pride. But now something has shifted. He looks to God in need and in recognition. Verse 34b continues, I extolled, that means to to praise enthusiastically the Most High. And I praised and glorified the one who lives forever. For his authority is an everlasting authority. And his kingdom, you hear all the, the shift here? Instead of I and my, his authority, his kingdom extends from one generation to the next. Unlike the ruins we just saw. All the inhabitants of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he wishes with the army of heaven and with those who inhabit the earth. No one slaps his hand and says to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar realizes God's proper place and he realizes his own proper place of humility. Humility is a profound action. Profound action that significantly affects our relationship with God and our relationship with others. In humility, we make a conscious decision to love people better, to care more deeply for others, and to live our lives with God at the center instead of us. Instead of our pride at the center and our ego and our fame and our resume and what we think is so important about us. Now we live with God at the center of our lives. C.S. Lewis said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. I like that. 
Verse 36 and 37. At that time, my sanity returned to me. This is Nebuchadnezzar still speaking. I was restored to the honor of my kingdom and my splendor returned to me. Anyone know a story in the Bible about a, uh, an individual who loses everything and now it gets all restored? Job, right? Job. Uh, also, another person, anyone? Uh, Samson? Samsung? Samson actually loses everything, though. Marries us foreign women, and it's all trouble. Joseph, I heard Joseph. I like that one. There's one more. We're actually studying the book of, of his right now. Yeah, Daniel loses a lot and, and gains a lot, too. Well, this is what it continues. My ministers and my nobles were seeking me out, and I was reinstated over my kingdom. I became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. For all his deeds are right and his ways are just. He is able to bring down those who live in pride. The time comes to an end. The king turns to God for mercy. God restores him to his full humanness and he opens his mouth in fervent praise and in worship. And then next week we're going onto a different king. So these are some good last words of Nebuchadnezzar here. Good change. Nebuchadnezzar is an example, a warning of how not to be led astray by our own personal achievements or or power. He's a model of how to respond to discipline. We don't like discipline, but discipline is often what we most need. And he responds to humiliation in a good way. He is even more a promise, a promise that earthly authorities are in the hand of God, not just for their judgment, but for God's glory. Now, I can never talk about humility and pride, I feel, without referencing again uh, Mr. C.S. Lewis. In his work, Mere Christianity, he urges his readers to turn from a life of pride, which he calls the great sin. And he encourages a life of humility, the opposite of pride. He says this, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you, do not, if you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him or her the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you are not conceited, it means you are very conceited indeed. About seven years ago, uh, I was working as a junior high, high school, and college pastor at a church called Crossroads Community Church. Church I grew up at. And I loved it. 
It was great. I was, I was just about to graduate from Cal Lutheran. I, I had a great job just getting out of college, and I was set. Tara and I were dating, and I'm like, man, we could get engaged real quick, get married. Life is perfect. Then they sat us all down at a table. This was in the middle of uh, the beginning stages of the recession. And uh, we were sitting there. Jeff and I were probably messing around under the table, hitting each other and stuff, as we always would. And I remember they, they had like this announcement for us all that there were going to be pay cuts because of the recession. Like, okay, that's all right. You know, I'm, I'm, I've got good money flowing right now. But then they said, you know, and, and we're also going to be uh, letting some people go. And everyone's kind of looking across the table at each other. Well, it's not going to be me. It's probably going to be this person. We kind of all had our ideas. And I remember talking to, to Jeff and also Tawny Bowsmith. She was working at, at Crossroads as well. And, and we kind of made up a, a, an idea like, well, who's it going to be? And I remember saying, there's no way they're going to they're let me go. I'm way too important. I'm doing the junior high. I'm doing the high school. I'm doing the college. Like, there's no way. I'm running all of these ministries. Not a chance they would let me go. And I remember they were going to have the meetings with each of the staff members. And we kind of all had our money on Tawny that she was going to go. And and Jeff was, we thought Jeff was going to go too. But certainly not me. So Tawny goes in and has this meeting, and I'm like, all right, let's get the tissues ready. Let's get the boxes ready for her. And we were joking about this, but she comes out. She's not crying or anything. She's actually smiling. I think she even probably got a a raise or something like that. I'm like, what? That's weird. I think Jeff went in, and then he comes out fine. And then I go in, I'm like, what is going on? And uh, I was told a lot of different things. And uh, they let me go. I'm like, what? Are you serious? Are you serious? I thought I was irreplaceable, right? But uh, apparently I was replaceable. And, you know, humility is a good lesson to learn. In the process of leading up to that, I remember how stupid I sounded saying like, oh, they're not going to let me go. They could never do that. A couple days after I, I had spoken those things, I remember getting on my hands and knees and praying and saying, God, if, if it's me that you need to go, send me. I was overwhelmed, overcome by just this. It felt like a warm blanket upon me. And as they told me, hey, we're letting you go. It's been great, but it's time for you to go. I felt like this freeing peace. And it wasn't like pride where I'm like, well, forget you guys or anything. It was, okay. And then we started a journey. So it's been a, a fun ride. But there are lessons to be learned in humility. Uh, grave lessons that will teach us so many different things. And, you know, that's one of those things that everyone says, don't pray for humility or don't pray for patience because God will give you a scenario where you're going to have to be humbled and experience a, a time of testing and where you have to become patient. But if we are truly serious about trying to love God with everything and love people with everything, it's what we got to do. Because God will shape us and transform us into who he wants us to be, not, not who we intend ourselves to be. Because God has way bigger plans for you and I than, than we could ever think of. 
So Lord, would you forgive us for our pride? Lord, we know that we've turned into ridiculous, animalistic beings in our pride. God, we pray for the strength and courage to live in humility before you and our world. Send us out, Lord, to be the people that you have called us to be. Send us out, God, to be the people who are humble in the land. Not that we're thinking about how humble we are. But, Lord, we're thinking about how great you are and how good you've been to us and how good you will always be. So, Lord, we long to imitate what you have done. And in our lives, would you receive glory and honor and praise. We set you on the pedestal. We remove ourselves. And we say, Lord, have your way in our lives. Amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Have a great...